the, then the thing that really sets me off is, well, once we have a vaccine, then everything will go back, back to, to normal. normal. Yeah. And I say, you mean like the flu vaccine that's 8% effective? Doesn't work. I catch I mean, if I had a brake pad manufacturing company for cars and my brake pads were 8% effective, I would be out of business. George Floyd was not taken out because he was black. George Floyd was taken out because he was owed major drug money by Derek Shaver. You're making vaccines that are 8% effective for the flu that you have to change every year, which, by the way, give most people that take them the flu. Mm -hmm. And you're going to tell me that this new, and they can't sue, you can't sue them for this without going through the VAERS court, which is a joke. And you're going to tell me that once we have a untested, brand new, rushed through vaccine, then everything is going to go back to normal? Good luck with that. I'll tell you what, they're going to test it in Africa, like they're doing, kill a bunch of Africans, pay them off $1,000 per person, which is the maximum that they have to spend if they kill somebody. So they already know that because it's way cheaper to kill them there than kill them here. Found out what the Chinese Communist Party, the Red Dragon, is doing to these people and have been doing to these people for the last 20 years in China, sending hundreds and thousands of innocent Falun Gong practitioners, Uyghur Muslims, house Christians, and Tibetan Buddhists. Particularly, 95% of um, the victims are Falun Gong practitioners to be state-mandated hospitals, concentration camps, death camps, military facilities, uh, military facilities run by the Chinese military at the behest of the, of the highest-ranking officials of the Chinese Communist Party to create a illegal sanctions forced organ harvesting business. Hey, how's it going, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Truth Defender podcast. We are coming to you from the greatest country in the world, deep in the heart of the Lone Star State, Dallas, Texas. I'm your host, Paula Gilad. Uh, I really appreciate you guys stopping in for another episode. If you guys are catching us on YouTube and you aren't already a subscriber, uh, please consider hitting that subscribe button for us, as well as that like button, and also consider uh, hitting that bell icon so you guys don't miss an episode in the future. Uh, If you guys are catching us on the go, or if you want to catch us on the go, you can find us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, as well as iHeartRadio, at Truth Defender Podcast. Uh, We'll have all of these social media linked down below, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Rumble, as well as Locals.com. Um, if you guys have any questions or comments for myself or our guests, guests or topic recommendations, you can shoot us an email at thetruthdefender1776 at gmail.com. Our next guest is Mr. Doug Elwell. Uh, Doug is a seeker of mysteries of the world, seeking out and revealing many previously unrevealed or forgotten secrets, both in ancient texts in the field and in the heavens. You can find his work at mysteriousworld.com, planetx.info. He also has a Facebook page. Um, You can also check out his books, Mysterious World Ireland, Planet X, The Sign of the Son of Man and the End of the Age, as well as The Riddle of the Sphinx. Uh, Without further ado, Mr. Doug, how are you doing, sir? Good, very good. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Appreciate your time. Um, So we obviously wanted to chat with you today. Um, Now, a lot of people, including myself, have heard the stories for many years. A lot of people know of it, but they don't know exactly what Planet X is. Um, Would you be able to kind of explain where that whole Planet X comes from? Like, why is it that we've all heard about it, but we just don't know much about it? Planet X is a theoretical planet that some astronomers believe 
uh, circles outside of our solar system and returns every few thousand years to be visible from Earth. It depends on the astronomer. Some people think it only gets as far as planet uh, Uranus, uh, you know, relatively far out, and we don't really see it. Some people, uh, the more fringe theorists like Zechariah Sitchin, believe that it actually comes as close to the asteroid belt and can be seen from Earth as a very bright star. But it's actually a planet, of course. And that theory came from the, uh, the studies of astronomers during late 1900s and early uh, 20th century, where they were searching for uh, planets beyond planet Neptune. And when they, uh, they felt that uh, planet Neptune, there was at least one more planet beyond it because they found what were, they believe were actually um, variations in the orbit of Neptune, which indicated there was gravitational influence from another planet farther beyond. Now, after uh, searching for a couple of decades, they finally found planet Pluto in 1930, but that wasn't nearly large enough to account for the eccentricities in Neptune's orbit. And of course, uh, later reviews of the measurements of the uh, of the uh, 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 astronomical views of Neptune from previous astronomers from the 1800s and so indicate that there was actually variations and, and errors in the plotting of the orbit of Neptune. So uh, they ended up discarding a theory that there was a planet X beyond Neptune. But when the Voyager probes actually went past the uh, planets uh, Uranus and Neptune back in the 1980s, they found them in a really, really wild disarray. It was a very strange set of situation. Instead of being uh, um, perpendicular to the plane of the ecliptic and no, virtually no moons or satellites of any significance there, uh, planet Uranus was actually tipped on its side. I think it was about 140 degrees, almost to the South Pole was actually pointing at the sun. And Neptune had similar issues, and it had its, its satellites had wildly eccentric orbits and in fact they determined from their analysis of of neptune and also pluto that pluto was actually an escaped satellite of neptune that had been ripped out of neptunian orbit by uh, a planet-sized object which they estimated anywhere to be three to ten times the mass of earth and so from that theory the they said that uh, revived the old planet x theory which they thought had been discredited and actually brought it brought it back powerfully to life because only a planet-sized object passing into our solar system from the outside and also from beneath, could have accounted for the anomalies in the outer solar system. Nothing else would work. So scientists are certain that planet is, exists out there. It's just a question of where is it, and is it a threat to Earth? Right. So how far back um, do we hear any kind of records of them actually thinking that it could be out, that it was actually out there, that you know, people had actually started believing that there was an actual planet X out there? Is there any kind of like time period when that kind of started becoming more popular? In the modern period, this, the interest began in the late 1900s. It's always been an interest in planets and alien life and so forth. There was a huge interest in Mars and during that period as well, and the, the belief that life existed on Mars. Right. So the idea of a planet X with or without inhabitants was not so outlandish. And uh, that interest continues to this day. It took a lot of, it really picked up some steam early in the 20th century, until, and there was impetus to find additional planets beyond Neptune. They never found planet X, uh, but they found the evidence of its existence by the effects it had on the outer planets. And they have since come to the conclusion that planet X was, it came, it's a massive object, probably five to seven times the mass of Earth that came in from underneath the plane of the ecliptic and actually at, at an angle. So it actually goes above and below and it actually goes deep into our solar system and back out again in a long elliptic orbit. As a result, it basically uh, it becomes invisible for long periods of time. It only becomes visible when it approaches the sun, which is only maybe 
25% of its total orbit, what's actually anywhere near the sun, maybe 10 or 5%. And so you can go many, many centuries without seeing it. And all of a sudden, as it approaches the sun, it becomes potentially visible because of the increase in light. And so, uh, like many long period comets, whose existence might be attributable to the existence of Planet X2, which we can talk about, um, Planet X remains outside of the solar system for the majority of its orbit. It only comes in for maybe a few hundred years, and it only comes into its perihelion for maybe a couple of decades, indicating possibly if it was in fact the star of Bethlehem, as some speculated, uh, mainly, uh, it may have been uh, visible during the entirety of Jesus's lifetime. Yeah, it's definitely so. So, I mean, as you mentioned, there's there's obviously been evidence that's been found by certain scientists. But what's what's the pushback on on Planet X? Why is it so? I guess taboo for for other scientists. Because I mean, the only thing I ever hear about Planet X is that it doesn't exist, and there's a lot of people that like to poo poo the idea. But I mean, what's what's what would be the significance of it actually existing and why would people want to push back on it? I mean, I never understood, you know, what the whole idea behind that was. Well, Planet X, people don't like change of any kind. They don't like new ideas, particularly when it interferes with their preset worldviews. Uh, like I mentioned with the Star of Bethlehem, people seem to think it's a, a conjunction of planets or a comet or something, and it really doesn't fit those criteria. But Planet X fits that perfectly. And my book, Planet X, The Sign of the Son of Man at the End of the Age, talks about exactly that, both the idea of Planet X being uh, uh, closely involved with the formation of Earth and its present form. That is the current formation. It wasn't formed exactly how it is now or the location it is now. It was actually moved as a result of this conflict with Planet X, which I believe came in deep into our solar system, uh, well into as far as where the asteroid belt is now, which was Earth's original orbital position before it was moved to its current one. People don't like change. They don't like new ideas. If it doesn't add value to their minds, they're likely to push it away saying, you know, I don't really care. It doesn't pay my bills. It doesn't raise my kids and send them to college. Not a big deal. And if you're a Christian, I've got my salvation experience. I've got my Sunday morning at church. That's all I really need. A lot of people don't like speculating about uh, advanced, what I call advanced, advanced theoretical theology, where you're trying to apply uh, math, you know, more advanced scientific concepts to theology, embrace the fact that technology has always existed and may have existed in isolated instances in the past. And also science has always been in the same, the physics has always been the same. Uh, so God created the universe in such a way that it is predictable. And, and um, so we can look to the past to see, you know, what might have happened in the past now. We can look to the future to look back and see what might have happened in the past. So Modern science allows us to um, compare modern understanding of, of, of science with ancient understanding. A lot of these ancient uh, appearances of stars and planets in the sky, or what the ancients called gods, were actually uh, stars and planets. And so when the, the Sumerians actually, uh, who lived between 2000 and 4000 so BC in the ancient Mesopotamia, which is modern Iraq, they worshiped a pantheon of gods, which we now know as the planets. And at the height of that pantheon of gods was a deity called Anu. And his name is actually means both star, heaven, and God. And so the ancient conception of God was closely tied with a star, which appeared occasionally in the heavens. And the heavens itself also was symbolized by this. Uh, it was like a cross-like shape, except it had two additional uh, crosses, kind of like a star of Bethlehem, typical eight-rayed star. This was called the Din Gear or the Anu symbol. Uh, 
And so since the beginning of recorded history, the idea of God and a star being intertwined uh, for very, very closely linked to the point of almost being inseparable. Uh, but people today, they don't care about the past, they just care about the right now. And so it's up to people like me and you to keep the light shining and keep an understanding and interest in our history going, lest we become just a bunch of socialist uh, paycheck people with no with no values and no future. Our past is part of the reasons we are free, and so we need to maintain the past and maintain curiosity about the past and open-mindedness in order to remain free now and in the future. Sure. Yeah, well, we're on the way down that socialist path now, but we'll still, I'll, steer, I'll steer clear from that. But uh, there's, a, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of things, you know, definitely going on nowadays that we can mm-hmm. definitely frown upon. But, um, you know, so I find it interesting. You mentioned that it was most of your belief that, that the planet X was actually the star of Bethlehem. Now, is, mm-hmm. was there, like, were there reports, I guess maybe what I'm trying to get to is, was there mention of Planet X like within the Bible or like any kind of writings? Was there any kind of belief at that time that that's what it actually was from anybody there? There's no specific reference to Planet X per se or planets in general. They were just referred to as stars. Okay. The Hebrew kokab, which just means uh, something that rolls through the sky. Mm-hmm. So the idea of kokab means something that rolls like a planet, So which is actually a very good description because as planets go through the sky, they're also turning around so the ancient Hebrews appear to maybe have understood that the planets also had rotations. Or maybe they thought of them as balls rolling through the sky, but I think they actually had a greater understanding revealed to them by God, which was retained over time through their language. And so um, the, whereas the ancients, uh, non, the ancient pagan peoples referred to the planets as gods, uh, the Hebrews couldn't do that because they were not polytheists, they were monotheists. And so they referred to them as the sons of God. And the sons of God refers, as shows up in the book of Job, which I talk about in chapter seven of my book, in that they appeared in the heavens not once but twice as a sort of a heavenly congregation when they were talking about Job and what to do with him. And then, of course, Satan appeared among them and there was a conversation. And interestingly, in the parallel text in Umay Elish, which I believe is a parallel text in the book of Job, Umay Elish was the uh, creation epic of the Babylonians. And they talked about a similar situation where there was two gatherings of the gods in heaven, right before there was a catastrophe on earth. In fact, uh, right before the, uh, their god Marduk attacked the dragon goddess Tiamat and created the earth from her head, there were two uh, different congregations of the gods in heaven. And they were uh, working together to help the Babylonian god Marduk defeat Tiamat and create the earth and bring peace to the solar system, basically. Um, it's very similar parallels between the Book of Job and also uh, the Babylonian creation epic uh, to the point where I think what they were talking about when they had these two congregations of the gods and the heavens or what the Hebrews referred to the sons of God, there was actually two different um, gatherings of the planets and heavens. And I found a time when that actually happened around 2000 BC um, between, I think it was between, between 2000 and uh, 1900 BC, there was actually two gatherings of the planets in a particular order of the sky, which from the ancients' perspective would have been seen as a gathering of the gods. And what I think what they were saying, what they were doing, using this as a marker to say, okay, if you see one gathering in the heavens of gods, this is the approximate time that um, of the time of the book of Job, and the second gathering was just before it. And so right after you see the second gathering of the gods, or the sons of God in heaven, you see Job having been, you know, destroyed by a wind from heaven. And so there was, there was 
and a similar situation in the Enuma Elish, the Babylonian creation epic, right after the two gatherings of the gods, there was a conflict between um, Earth and another, some, another star in heaven. So I think what they're both talking about is the same event from different perspectives, one polytheistic, one's monotheistic. Both of these events talk about, both of these stories talk about a single event in history where Earth was created from a body of a dragon. And uh, its head was actually used to form the Earth, and its tail was used to form the heavens. Um, I believe what the tail was, it was actually remnants of the Earth after it had been struck by one of the satellites of Planet X. And part of Earth remained in its original orbit where it formed the asteroid belt. That was the quote-unquote tail of the dragon. And the head went further closer into the sun where it came to the earth and God gave it a rotation period, an axial tilt, and all the rest of the things that are necessary for life, including a moon and so forth, and a rapid rotation rate, without of which all these things, life on earth, as we understand it, could not exist. Um, so earth was a created planet that had been created from a previous planet that had formed naturally. And God, God sent in planet X as kind of a divine, like a divine billiard player. He sent the planet X in like a cue ball to strike Earth, move it closer to the sun, where he could do a final adjustment there and make it so it could actually support life. And so, and, and in a way, Elish, the god Marduk of the Babylonians, who the Babylonians had replaced the original creator with their own god. So, but we can all see, still see aspects of the original creation myth there. And Marduk also used um, part of the original Earth to create Earth too. They even talked about the creation of the oceans and also of mankind. They even talk about the uh, the fallen angels. Um, forget the exact term, but it was the Babylonian equivalent coming down and so forth. It's very interesting the parallels. In fact, the parallels are so close that when they found the Babylonian creation, I think I think around the late eighteen hundreds, a lot of scholars who were more liberal in character actually thought that the Bible had ripped off this story. It was so close in many ways, and so since that time. Scholars believe that it's close links between the Babylonian creation epic and also the uh, creation material in the Bible, specifically in Job, which is absolutely overflowing with creation material, some of which had not been properly translated. And I go through that in my book and show you some of the creation material and how it relates to Planet X, uh, and it's, the parallels are quite astounding. Right. Now, so I, I've always had this, I guess, kind of thought, do you think that maybe the rejection of Planet X was more... Uh, at face value, or was it the fact that uh, Planet X was kind of linked, or is linked with the fact, um, or is linked to the Anunnaki and you know how the theory is that they came down to Earth and they were the ones who seeded the planet? Do you kind of lean more towards one or the other, or is it maybe just all as a whole? Probably the major major rejection is the uh, sort of fringy aspect of Zechariah Sitchin stuff, which is not unethical and kind of borderline. In, on the cult world, sure. there's, there's overlap on both sides, and so um, Christians kind of stay clear of stuff that's questionable. Unless you're someone like me who's kind of familiar with texts, I actually have a master's in Old Testament biblical studies. I had read Sitchin in college, and I wanted to know if any of what I said was accurate. So I uh, got a master's degree in biblical studies from Wheaton College, and partly to learn how to do ancient Hebrew reading and write and speak ancient Hebrew. And as a result, I was able to read the ancient text and still am. And a lot of what he was talking about was sounded pretty much on target in terms of the Hebrew stuff, not all of it. But it was reasonable. And the existence of a Planet X theory by independent scholars who had no interest in the Bible at all or the ancient ancient texts, they were completely uh, sterile. I mean, they 
they're not even particularly religious as far as I know. And uh, so their, their objective look at Planet X from the scientific perspective lent heavy credence to the possibility that Planet X existed and Sitchin's theory that it was part of the new militia, a key part of the new militia and of the Bible, even though his interpretations weren't that great, the core concept of that was solid. And it made sense, particularly since the ancients worshipped the gods as planets. And if there was a planet that came into our solar system from outside and interacted with other planets in a significant way, particularly if it was dominant, it would be seen as kind of a king of the gods, which is exactly what we see in the new Malish, this uh, star that is also a god coming in from outside of the of, from out, you know, outside of the assembly of the gods, which is symbolically the planets in our solar system. These ancient Sumerians, if you're able to accept it, knew about exactly what Planet X did to at least 4,000 years before we figured it out. And even now, we're not still figuring stuff out. And there's stuff in the, in the Bible that I think is more advanced than we understand now. I've had some interesting ideas, some things I found when I was doing retranslation of Job and some other things, that there might be more to this than even we know in science. And so the Bible actually knows the whole story. I think we understood, I might be understand a majority of it. I still think there's a lot more in there about Planet X. Uh, for example, I was speculating that the description of the throne of God in Revelation 4, very similar to the description of the theophany of Marduk in, in, in New Elish, because Marduk was also surrounded by these um, two groups of what he called winds, which uh, Sitchin, I think, correctly interpreted as gaseous uh, satellites. Um, there was a group of seven of them and a group of four of them. And in the Bible, uh, Revelation 4, I believe it is, God is surrounded, his God is surrounded by a group of seven uh, flaming uh, spirits and a group of four uh, living creatures. I think what they mean there is they have additional detail as to what those satellites were. Uh, the the Sumerians got it wrong. It wasn't 11 gaseous satellites. It was actually seven gaseous satellites and four rocky satellites because when it says the four living creatures, which could simply mean something that is moving, the concept of being animated rather than being alive, it could be these um, These are actually satellites of Planet X, which are rotating rapidly, moving and animate. And the many eyes they have on them, the Hebrew uh, word ayin for eye actually literally means whole. Uh, like when, you, when it described the human body and the eyes are thinking it's seen as holes to the inside of the body. But what it's referring to an inanimate object like a, a rock or, or a planet, it could be best translated as craters. And so um, basically what you have here is it, the, it's not living creatures full of eyes. It's rapidly rotating rocky satellites full of craters, probably similar to our moon, but, but larger. And so you have a description here in Revelation 4, not of these spirits and these creatures, like big beasts, there are actually uh, seven gaseous satellites which are literally on fire, and another group of four uh, rocky satellites which are like protective, like the moon is. And you can imagine a giant planet, seven times the mass of Earth, with seven flaming satellites, four huge rocky satellites, probably countless asteroids and comets rotating around it, and a massive um, comet-like tails, three tails. You can imagine the terror that would engender in the opponent you're approaching. And that's what's going to happen in the end times. Jesus is on this planet, ostensibly, riding towards us like Ming the Merciless or, or the Emperor in Star Wars, who, by the way, both of those characters are probably purposely created by occult forces to make the coming king on his throne look like a bad guy, you know, FYI. In yeah. fact, he's the good guy. And he's coming in on this, on this powerful planet, which is just gigantic, gigantic Death Star kind of situation, but bigger, a lot bigger. 
and it's coming right for earth. And this is the final battle between Jesus and Satan. And he's about to wipe out everyone on earth who sides with Satan. You can imagine the terror they're feeling right before the final battle when this thing is literally filling the sky and there's a massive group of angels coming right for them. This is the ter- ultimate terror weapon. And one of the things, one of the reasons I think that's what's going on in the book of Revelation, that Planet X is one of the primary uh, focuses of one of the great mysteries in the book of Revelation. And Jesus is actually revealing not only himself, but the mystery of Planet X and uh, his powerful forces that he's bringing with him. As Isaiah said, weapons of war coming from a far country to devastate the surface of the earth. And so I believe you mentioned earlier, but what, what was thought to be the orbit, like the time frame of it when it comes closer to Earth? What, are we kind of in that cycle or how is that kind of going right now? My theory is that it comes around roughly every 2,000 years. Uh, the Sumerians saw it around 4,000 BC and began worshiping in Anu. 2,000 years later, it preceded the birth of Abraham. And uh, the comets and asteroids that stirred up as it passed through our solar system probably struck the Earth and was responsible for the destruction of the Sumerian city of Ur and also of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. And there's lots of asteroidal and similar materials being stirred up by the incoming of this planet, which carries a large amount of material in its orbit, both before and after it. And so as it's coming in, as by passing by the outer planets, Jupiter, etc., this stuff's being peeled out of its orbit and being thrown all over the inner solar system. And a fair amount of it was pelting Earth, apparently. So that explains not only the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, but also, um, not many people know this, but uh, the, the um, Sumerians were actually destroyed by what appears to be a massive asteroid which struck the southeastern uh, area of Iraq and the marshlands near the Gulf there. Um, in a uh, books called The Lamentation of Sumer and Ur, and another one of similar title, they talked about how their god Enlil, about 2,000 years uh, before Christ, uh, appeared in the sky and threw down a fiery, you know, threw down fire onto Sumer and destroyed the great city of Ur, which is the greatest city of Ur, which Abraham came out of. My theory is that Abraham was being called out of Ur because God knew it was about to be destroyed, and he brought him west um, um, and, and to, to retrieve his brother before another uh, group of asteroids or possibly some space debris. Some people think it was pelted by many, many small pieces of sulfur and just burned up and destroyed that way. In either case, um, Abraham was was saved from an asteroid strike. And um, also Lot was saved from an asteroid strike. God knew what was going on and because he had been coming out on his planet and came down and saved his best people from what was going to be coming and let the bad people be destroyed by the by the results of uh, some of the asteroid material that he purposely hurled towards the Earth. In fact, the paradigm of that 2000 BC period is not dissimilar to the end times with the asteroid material falling and destroying massive cities. And of course, the end time destruction is far more widespread and devastating. So it's basically a 2000 year period based on the 2000 year orbit. 2000 is 4000 BC for the Sumerians, 2000 BC for the end of the Sumerians, uh, 0 BC or 0 AD for the birth of Christ in the Star of Bethlehem, and 2,000 years later or so for the star, or the sign of the Son of Man and the end of the age. Right. So we're already within that kind of time frame, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's wild. I mean, so the moon in, in all of this is what, I mean, I don't know if you have any kind of idea or, or have any thoughts on what the moon is actually, but um, where did the moon come from? Because there's a lot of people that say that the moon was just kind of 
placed here or or it just doesn't belong anywhere near us it's like what, i mean where does where does that come from I, I don't know if you have any kind of insight on that most scientists now believe and have been for decades actually since about 1981 they came to the conclusion that uh, after a lot of speculation the moon could only have been hit uh, created by uh an object that roughly the size of the planet Mars, not Mars itself, but an object the size of Mars, struck Earth at a, kind of an angle. That object dug deep into its, into its core where it remains to this day. Mm. And um, in the process, it, the mantle became liquefied and was thrown up into space. There it's cooled and solidified to, to form the moon. We know that because we found that the moon was actually made of the same material as Earth's mantle, so it must have come from Earth. And the only way for it to have formed in the way it did was if it were ejected by a massive um, a small planet or a very large moon, striking the Earth and displacing the material, which then cooled and solidified in Earth's orbit. Sure. Okay. Yeah. It's, That's called the uh, giant impact theory. Okay. Yeah. It's always, it was always kind of a mystery to a lot of people, myself included. I mean, you'd always hear stories like over the years of just, people not knowing where, where it came from and that shouldn't have been here, you know, whatever. And you just didn't know where, where it actually had originated from. So um, that's good to hear that there's some kind of explanation behind it. Um, the science all lines up with the scripture, but you have to interpret it correctly. Sure. The, the planet X theory is the only way I've seen to explain a lot of the anomalies. Uh, Earth is even described, God is described as dividing the dragon, uh, breaking the heads of Leviathan in the waters in Psalm 74. Very clear parallels with the new Elishan and other ancient Near Eastern, te- ancient Near Eastern texts, uh, such as uh, that of the uh, um, the ancient Canaanites, actually, the Amorites. The, there's parallels between uh, the Leviathan of the Old Testament and Loitan of the Canaanite myths, and both of them were engaged in a battle with uh, a deity for the cre- involved with the creation of the earth. So the, um, the idea of uh, God battling a dragon symbolically and creating the earth from its head it was ubiquitous in various forms throughout the ancient Near East. In my opinion, it should be considered the way to properly interpret creationism rather than the way it is now, which is more modern thought. Right. And that would kind of lead back to, I guess, to, would you be able to kind of shed a little bit of light on who the Anunnaki are and what that whole theory was? Um, just for a lot of people who don't know, I mean, I just kind of threw that out there earlier well, without explaining what it was. Um, yeah, I skipped over that, sorry. The Anunnaki were an important part of ancient Near Eastern religion because they were the gods, uh, kind of the angels of, of the uh, nations. And we had the good angels, that is to say the Israelites and Christians later on, but they had the bad ones, the demons, and now they're called Anunnaki. And the Anunnaki literally means Anu, which means heaven, like we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. Na, I guess, means from or came from and key means earth and so anunnaki means those who came from heaven to earth and interacted with mankind in fact we have any ancient babylonian texts and similar things we actually have deities like ishtar coming down from heaven with these symbolic wings and the whole thing and giving mankind um detailed descriptions of how to build her temple uh, like those ziggurats you see she actually a deity, they believe, actually came down from heaven and gave them the instructions on how to build it for her. And so uh, they believed that the Anunnaki were real beings that were like angelic in nature. But we would call them demons because they were not good. They were very, very immoral. And they, and they dealt more 
with technology and arts and sciences and what we would call technology and giving them to mankind so mankind can advance and learn and grow. And my, my theory is, is that uh, the fallen angels had, having been defeated in heavenly warfare with the good angels, led by Michael, had come down to earth to try to recruit more warriors in their fight against God and his forces. And so this is why you see in various ancient texts, uh, the Lita Palenque, I think in, in Mexico or in South America, I think it exactly where. Some people believe it's, it's a, the, the lid of a coffin that an ancient king of uh, South or Central America had actually constructed a rocket that he could use actually to fly into space. And the lid of that rocket actually shows what appears to be a rocket complete with controls and everything. Now, it's, that seems far-fetched, but if the giants were involved with technology, as the text seemed to imply, and the fallen angels, uh, as described in the Book of Enoch, actually came down and gave mankind knowledge of all the arts and sciences, they're like us. I mean, probably it sounded like they're up to our point as far as maybe the, the Enlightenment period, which was only a few centuries ago. And the giants who were geniuses and brilliant and long-lived could have easily built rocket ships just like we did. And so it's, it's not impossible. They're no more smarter than we were. They're genetically the same. In fact, if we're to believe the Bible and other ancient Eastern texts, they were actually genetically superior, meaning they were more likely to be able to do more advanced stuff. And the fact that their, their fallen angel fathers had given them technology openly in the text, I mean, there's no doubt they had technology. What are the odds of them not doing stuff like this? And so there might be open warfare in the heavens with not only angels and demons, but also giants flying around in spacecraft of their own making. Um, there might be entire civilizations living on various planets or satellites in our solar system. We don't know. In fact, some of the reasons that we are not allowed to do space travel too far out into space is because there might be people out there who don't want us around. And so this is why we're getting cover-ups and you know, diffusion from NASA, like, oh, we can't make it back to the moon because the technology isn't there. Of course it's there. We probably went to the moon before those uh, launches in 1969, uh, or at least had probes up there. It wouldn't be that hard to do. The, te the technology to get up to the moon was around for decades prior to that. All I needed was a good-sized rocket and a propellant to get up there. And a camera, and that would have been enough to see what's up there. So I think that we've been actually, we're only seeing a fraction of what's actually happening. And um, I think mankind, since Roswell, has made an alliance with uh, one or more groups of fallen angels to uh, rebel against God and defend against Christ's second coming. So what we're seeing in the end times in the first three and a half years is the buildup of, of Earth's forces to repel the second coming. And then the Antichrist takes his throne in Jerusalem uh, or takes the throne in Jerusalem. Uh, he'll be uh, sort of the commander-in-chief of Earth's armed forces, uh, specifically to repel the second coming of Christ, which at that time his throne, which I think is probably Planet X, will start to become visible to the naked eye. And that's when the real war begins and uh, all hell breaks loose, literally. Yeah, I've always found it um, a bit frustrating when when people talk about how the ancient peoples were were not, you know, they just didn't have the technology or they weren't smart enough to do whatever, you know, they would find. Uh, you would see carvings, like you mentioned, of like ancient astronauts and things like that. And they just kind of explain it away as mm -hmm. something other, like outlandish thing. But to think that I've always kind of been in the same boat as yourself, that, that these people from way back then had, I mean, you've had stories of like Atlantis and things like that. So um, 
you know, it's just always been one of those kind of things where I, I, I would hear people talk about and, and they would say things like, oh, well, there's no way they could be as advanced back then or they wouldn't have the technology for it. And as you mentioned, there might even be cases where they're even more advanced than we are now. So um, right. it's, it's, it's definitely frustrating to hear people talk about it. But I mean, as you mentioned right now, that they obviously don't want people traveling into space, things like that. Um, I mean, how far does it go? I mean, obviously we probably have to go way above the president's desk. I mean, there's like whole global governments that are maybe in on it as well. Would, you know, would they, would they have a vested interest in keeping this information a secret, especially when it comes to like Planet X and such? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's definitely, um, I mean, how far do you think that goes up all the way to the top or? Planet X would be one of the highest military secrets. So we would never hear about it until they could no longer cover it up. Probably it's being covered up. If it doesn't, it doesn't have a screen of its own um, cloaking device of some kind. Uh, it, I think what's happening is that the Psalm, Psalms say God uh, covers himself in clouds and thick darkness. But I think what's happening is there's so much material debris left over from the uh, destructive interactions with Earth that's still in circulation around planet X that a lot of the light is being absorbed by this material. We see evidence of this in the, on the comets where actually uh, they're not actually bright white like a snowball. They're actually covered with a very thick black material. It's kind of like tar, uh, but it's organic. and it has It's an organic tar, which is blacker than coal. And so if these comets are covered with this, you can imagine uh, other things that were involved with the creation were also covered with this tar-like coal, or at least a coal-like uh, dust, which um, is probably still in orbit around planet X to this day because the the impact of one of its satellites into Earth would have thrown up gigantic amounts of dust and rocks into the uh, into space, and Planet X would have captured most of that in its orbit and carried it with it, and probably has much of it still with it to this day. And so, as Jesus says, "Behold, I come like a thief in the night." Uh, thieves cover themselves with dark garments, maybe even fully black garments, like a ninja, and they sneak up on the house in order to rob it. They don't come in wearing bright clothing and you know jewelry and things. They come they come here to sneak up on you. And so Jesus is doing the same thing. He's got this, this stealth planet that's sneaking up on us and it might be on the, it might be approaching the inner solar system as we speak. We don't know. Um, there's no way to tell uh, because you can't see it. And if people do know it's coming, they're not talking. So I imagine they're aware of it and they're, they're already planning for it, but we won't hear about it until uh, it probably actually appears in the heavens. And even then we'll be given, given propaganda saying this is nothing important to worry about or it's common or something. But in fact, it is God returning for revenge on his enemies and to take over the earth. Yeah, I mean, I would imagine it'd have to be something, uh, a, a gigantic uh, type of cover-up, you know, not just be, not just with our government, but, you know, governments around the world. They, they would have access to that kind of knowledge. Um, you know, you wouldn't want whole societies breaking down. And I'm sure the churches and all kinds of religions wouldn't want that either because, you know, there would be nothing to, I mean, like you mentioned, if, if, if God was returning, that would be great for, you know, Christians and Catholics and such, but other religions from around the world, you know, they would have nothing, I guess, to kind of fall back on. They would just kind of, you know, fall from their their religions and their institutions and such. So that would cause right. a huge mess, you know, all, all over the world. Um, I don't know if I want that either, but... So if you read the Bible, things are kind of smoothly follow, kind of gradually go down. So there's not one big catastrophe. It's a number of smaller ones. 
which are still big, but they're not, they're not uh, world ending. Right. And so a lot of the punishments are not reaching their full climax until the second half of the tribulation. In the first half, you know, one, three, one third of the trees are burnt up, one third of the life in the oceans died, I think, and, and so forth. It's a limited judgment and saying, okay, you need to repent. If you don't, we're going to step it up a notch. And the next time, none of the trees, none of the sea life, and maybe most of you won't be around either. And so the first half is really uh, God's initial bombardment, warning them, I'm coming, I'm going to conquer you. And if you don't cooperate with my conquest and takeover, I'm just going to wipe you out and take over anyway. And that's kind of what he's saying in the Bible is, you know, do we can do it the easy way or if we do it the hard way? Right. Either way, I'm taking over and mankind hardens their heart until the end, even when a defeat is certain, they still won't give up. So that you can imagine what they're planning. No, it's, I mean, you, you look all around and for, for people, you know, like myself and other people that are more religious, you see the fall from, you know, from God and, and turning away from the church. And, and even within the church, it's just, I mean, I spoke with this um, a while back with, uh, I want to say it was Pastor Bill Bean, I think that I had on the show that, you know, even within the church, there's, there's a lot of like priests and such that don't even believe in God. That they don't believe that there's an actual devil, and and it's just like a, a, a complete falling away from the church. Mm-hmm. Myself, as as a Roman Catholic, I don't recognize this pope as my pope, which hurts me a lot because of you know obviously because I'm Roman Catholic. But but there's just a lot of things that that have that have happened within the Vatican and within the church that that are just going against everything that that it should stand for. Um, and I can imagine that, that was, that's only escalating things dramatically. Um, I mean, it's one of the largest religions around the world besides uh, Islam. But I mean, uh-huh. it's it's just everywhere you look nowadays, it's just complete complete mockery of, of Jesus Christ, God, and, and the church. And it, it's not looking too good right now. So um, I, I, I even spoke with them about this as well. I mean, a lot of pastors and reverends that I spoke to in the past believe that we are coming up in the last days. And I know we've heard these kind of things for years. I mean, I've heard the same thing for years as well, that these are the, these are the last days and these are the last days, but, but it really feels like it now at, at this point, there's a lot of things escalating and it's just getting worse. <laughs> it's right. yeah. So Speaking it's, of the Anunnaki, they've probably been coming down thrown out of heaven by battles with God this entire time. I mean, Revelation 12, they're talking about the dragon being thrown down from heaven and dragging one-third of the stars down, which some people believe is one-third of the angels, or fallen angels, which I think is reasonable symbolically. Uh, it might be these angels had not been falling down all at once, but in waves. And so as they come down, it's like you see these UFO crashes and things like that. These are probably them being thrown out of heaven and crashing on earth to escape judgment where they build up their defenses and interact with people and kind of take them in the direction of these false doctrines or these demons. And so that's why we're seeing the great falling away is because these angels are being thrown, fallen angels are being thrown out of heaven with their false doctrines. And so they're spreading their, their poison on earth. And so Jesus can say with complete reasonableness, uh, even without prophesying that in the end times, there'll be falling away and there'll be doctrines of demons and people will be liars and self-deluded following after their own lusts, because that's exactly what happened after the battles of Satan and his forces being thrown off from heaven. 
that is what's happening. They are going back to Earth. So predictably, they're going to be spreading their lies there. And so it's completely reasonable to, to understand if we are seeing an uptick in apostasy, which we certainly are, then uh, you know that the end is near. Jesus would not allow this unless it was part of the overall plan, which he predicted. So we can be see with reasonableness that the uh, end times are upon us, if no other reason that the, the Christianity is in retreat and the doctrines of devils. And we could be even gen in general are on the rise. Definitely feels like it. You know, it's mm -hmm. it's it's been a, a rough kind of. I mean, it's it's been a rough, long I mean, since two thousand and I want to say two thousand one, really, kind of when the whole nine eleven thing happened, and then yep. it started ramping up. So after that, you know, wars and in and out of wars and invading countries and on all mm -hmm. kinds of terrorist things, but. Um, it definitely feels like there's something going on. I mean, I even spoke with, with some people that, that I know that were kind of in the, in the, not in the process, but wanting to have like more children and such that are putting that off because of how uncertain they feel around this time and, and how, where they see this country going in the next five years or so. Um, you know, we even have a whole bunch of people that just don't want to have kids anymore, which is, Mm -hmm. which is not that great i mean not very catholic yeah we've, we've kind of been in that same boat um you know it's just it's just hard just seeing what's been going on lately mm -hmm. um and you're just not too certain about the next 10 years or so if it's if it's going to be good to bring you know children into the world anymore so um it's unfortunate but it's just kind of where we're at right now that's right yeah it's it's, it's rough but yeah. Anyways. Um, yeah. So, you know, we mentioned that you had actually had a book, um, Planet X and the Sign of the Son of Man and the End of the Age. Can you kind of go over what you kind of cover within the book as well? Yeah. So I divided up this uh, book into seven chapters. I wanted to kind of thoroughly go over the research I'd accumulated to convince myself that this was, in fact, the correct theory. Uh, and, and one of the reasons for the book is to Kind of introduce Christianity to a new way of seeing creationism is more God-centric and specifically more Planet X-centric because Planet X was one of his primary tools that he used to fashion the Earth in its present form. So the first chapter is talking about kind of putting the uh, the creationist concept uh, foundational thought pattern back into the ancient Near East in the world of Bible where it belongs. And so I talk about the uh, the paradigm I mentioned earlier about the idea of the creation being really um, uh, the basic idea was that it was a, a star or a planet in the heaven uh, fighting against another planet in our solar system, which was actually Earth. It was symbolized as a battle between God and a dragon, God being this, a new star or planet that came from outside of our solar system and the Earth being the dragon, the evil creature that was out of control that needed to be tamed. And so um, and we see the uh, the, the um, the idea of the dragon rising again in the end times and needing to be retained again. Uh, so that's kind of, it makes sense that uh, the scholars who discovered the texts and studied them believed that the Book of Revelation was actually heavily influenced by this idea of the, the dragon uh, re revising again, the battle between God and Leviathan or Marduk and Tiamat as the uh, Sumerians thought of it, and the Babylonians. And so there's a tie-up between the beginning and the end. They call it the creation and chaos in the beginning and end times because the old dragon rises again in the, in the end times. And so the end times and the creation times are 
closely linked symbolically and in terms of scope of what happens. Uh, and both of them, Planet X, figure prominently in Planet X for Vector in significant ways in both at both times. And that's why it says uh, in, in, uh, in the New Testament, the earth will be shaken harder than it ever has been since the creation, because that's the last time Planet X passed close to Earth. That's the main reason. And so um, that's why I want to make that clear. Both beginning and end times are closely tied in with Planet X. And in the middle, you have the Star of Bethlehem, which is kind of in the middle of the Bible. And it's, it's a reference to uh, the Planet X take, is, shows up in the beginning, middle, and end of the Bible. And so it's, it's integral to the text. And, and if its appearances uh, signal major changes in the relationship between God and men. And indeed, what we're called covenantal relationship, if you believe in that sort of thing. And so every time, and indeed, the first time in the book of Genesis, I, can't, I figured this out. But it says, there is she to the first um, sentence of the Bible in Genesis 1 1. There is she in the beginning, karat. Uh, God didn't, he didn't create uh, the, it didn't create the uh, earth. It says the word used there is actually means cut. And so, um, God cut the earth. He didn't create it. In a sense, he didn't directly create it. It's in the sense that he fashioned it into something new. But it wasn't an act of creation. It was an act of destruction, which led to a new creation. And this uh, makes sense in the context of an Emilish because when Marduk struck Tiamat with one of its one of his winds, he divided the heaven and earth into two pieces. And so you have a very clear parallel between the Bible and the ancient Near East texts of the, old, of the ancient Near East. And so it fits in perfectly with that concept of, of of a god dividing a dragon into pieces and creating the earth from its body, and so that's a very clear example of how the the Bible fits into its ancient Near Eastern context quite well. That's just in the first verse, and also um, I talk about how the um, various aspects of Earth, the Moon, the uh, the fact that it's closer to the sun than it should be. Uh, the axial tilt, rotation rate, all these things are talked about in the Bible as having been created by God. Uh, they're all mentioned indirectly or directly in uh, the book of Genesis, which actually gives a fairly good accounting of the planet X theory, how it was seen from the biblical perspective, if you translate it correctly, and I provide that translation for you. So the first chapter is talking about planet X and the creation, mainly, mainly the idea of the, the creation theory as being a battle between a god and a dragon symbolically as being the fundamental paradigm of the ancient Near East, including the Bible, and going through the texts that cover that concept. In chapter two, I talk about ancient Near Eastern astronomy and how the um, Babylonians and Assyrians, Sumerians and all and the Persians and Greeks and Romans and everybody worshiped the god as planets. And the reason uh, the planets are called by Roman names today is because the Romans also worshiped the planets as it had been since the beginning of mankind's history. And so the gods of the ancient Near East were the planets and they worship the stars and planets as gods. And um, that's the basic concept of chapter two. Now, chapter three, that leads into the Magi as the inheritors of the ancient creation tradition. And the Magi came from Persia. As you recall from the Bible, Daniel was taken from the Babylonian court along with the best of the astronomers and astrologers and wise men and brought to the Persian courts where they founded the uh, Persian intelligentsia and upgraded their ability to do astronomy and astrology and all these sorts of things. And, and what we would call science. And uh, Daniel and those Magi, uh, Daniel and those wise men became what we know as the Magi. The Magi were the wise men of Persian tradition. 
And so the Magi actually may have been inheritors of an ancient creation tradition that had been inherited from the Sumerians, taken to the Babylonians, taken by the Babylonians to the Persians during the conquest of Persia of Babylon. Daniel probably carried along with him and all his other writings and the Bible, of course, and its current state at that time. And the Magi inherited that tradition, and that's why they understood not only what the star was, but who it was foretelling. And so they were able to see understand this as a planet in our solar system that returned every couple thousand years. And every time the planet returns, God comes down to Earth in some form. Uh, 2,000 years before that, God appeared to Abraham. 2,000 years before that, um, what appears to be God of the Bible and with a different name appeared to the Sumerians. There was a very godlike deity who came down from heaven. And some of the tablets they have show this being, you know, giving instruction on the law, very similar to the uh, the uh, Judeo-Christian version of God. Not the same, but very similar. Passed through more of a Sumerian filter, but 2,000 years before Abraham, there was a very similar event where God, a great God came down from heaven and visited mankind. And then there was uh, Jesus coming down, born in a manger, of course. And then 2,000 years later or so, he'll come back in a spiritual form as the son of man. And so you have these, every, every 2,000 years he comes back. And the Magi were the most recent time that mankind recognized and respected that. In fact, it was interesting the way if you read the Bible in that context. Um, the Israelites were so completely clueless that Jesus completely blew them off and went directly to the Magi and said, okay, I think what he said was, okay, these people have no idea what's going on. Let's talk to the Magi and have them come and honor my son because the Israelites in the land have no idea what's going on. And so he completely disrespects the holy men of his time and brings in these outer people from a completely different land, hundreds of miles away, to honor his son and his birth and his kingship of the earth, present and future. And so that's what the Magi were. They were inheritors of this ancient creation tradition. They knew that uh, this being had come down from heaven, possibly from this planet, that he would once rise back, come go back to that planet and rule the universe or the solar system, at least from that planet. And so they honored him and worshipped him as the king of heaven and earth. Um, and they were the only ones to have done that. He, not even the shepherds knew who he was. So that was chapter three. And chapter four, I go back to... Uh, now, before I go to the Sitchin interpretation, how he, he saw the stars and the planets as gods, and kind of go, kind of went through that and did a summary of Sitchin's interpretation of the emulation, created parallels between the Bible, biblical creation material, and also the Sumerian material, and made a lot of parallels. And when you look at the parallels, it's very, very clear. They weren't the same, but they were definitely drawn from the same source material. The Sumerian version was written out as from a polytheistic perspective. And the biblical materials written from a monotheistic perspective, where they had the same source material, but I'm calling a grunge shrift or a foundation text, a foundation tradition from which they both drew this material and went their different ideological directions. Abraham was probably called out of war to save that creation tradition for future use, whereas the creation traditions of the Babylonians were destroyed for the most part by the, by the asteroid. We managed to find them, finally dig them up about 100 or so years ago. I think it was back in the 19th century. But that, that material had been lost for thousands of years and was only recovered recently. And ironically, it's not hasn't been a problem. It's actually given us great insight into the scriptures and the world of the Bible. And so creationists should take this seriously and look at the creation as part of its time with the battle between God and the dragon and all the rest. Without that foundational concept, you cannot properly interpret the creation, creation material. It just doesn't work. And so that's why a lot of the creation material we see nowadays is kind of 
substandard in my opinion. That's that's just my opinion. And so and in chapter five, I go back to the biblical interpretation of bringing in Planet X and um also uh the Sumerian stuff from from uh petition and also the astronomical and the Magi biblical stuff and put start to put it all together into one continuous, you know, narrative as to what this is probably what happened by using each narrative or each tradition to patch in the holes from the other one and provide directions, like I mentioned earlier. Uh, probably the eleven satellites around Planet X were actually a combination of four rocky satellites and seven gaseous satellites. And so um Newman at least thought it was eleven gaseous satellites, if you call it a certain Sitchin interpretation. Then in chapter six I go into the Book of Job, which by itself was actually such a huge amount of creation material, I actually gave it its own chapter. And I believe there is so much creation material when you actually look at it in this context of God versus the dragon, the, the divine creation complex, planet X, satellite striking Earth, and so forth. If you look at it in that context, the book of Job is quite clearly not just a wisdom literature and guys singing about how, the, how um, unforgiving God is and so forth. It's actually a very cleverly assembled series of traditions regarding the creation that parallels Enuma Elish and very closely in a number of respects. And I went as far, I, I liked it so much, and I felt it was so creation-oriented. And I feel we need to recategorize it, not as wisdom literature, but as the Hebrew as the Hebrew creation epic, paralleling the Babylonian creation epic. The material is so similar that I think we miscategorized it, and I retranslated uh, parts of it, the key parts regarding the creation, and, and believe it is now, should be considered a, a creation epic. And then finally, in chapter 7, the last chapter, I put it all together, and as a kind of a uh, a background and context to more fully understand the book of Revelation. Uh, if you have an understanding of God versus the dragon and this planet X possibly coming in, this fallen angels, Anunnaki and all the rest, you get a much clearer picture of the book of Revelation and what they're actually saying there. So in that context, a lot of the stuff and the symbology and the patterns and thoughts and traditions make it much clearer what's going on in the book of Revelation. I was unable to immediately detect after I spent a number of uh, of time in ancient texts and, and astronomy and all that. When I came back to, to the book of Revelation, I found a lot of stuff in there that fits in with the planet X paradigm. Um, we talked about the throne earlier. Uh, the sea of glass is probably what we would call a Saturnian ring system. Uh, the seven uh, uh, the seven spirits are probably seven gaseous satellites that actually catch fire as you get, as you get close to the sun. Before uh, uh, creatures, the four living creatures are probably four rocky satellites that are covered with craters. And there's also um, in, in the book of Daniel uh, and also I think in Revelation that it had like what appeared to be long flowing white hair. That long flowing white hair uh, corresponds exactly with the idea of uh, Planet X having a huge comet-like tail. And in fact ancient depictions of, of Anu and Enlil and Ashur and also her Amasta, actually, the Persians, all show them with these giant wings going out the side and also a tail, smaller uh, tail at the bottom. So on top of that, what appears to be the, the great hair of the Ancient of Days in Daniel. Ancient of Days is probably referring to Planet X returning after its 2,000-year orbit. And the thrones said in judgment were probably referring to the satellites that were surrounding it. In fact, there might have been an, an additional 24 thrones that were mentioned in these texts corresponding to the 24 thrones of the uh, of the elders. And so these uh, these thrones were set up 
probably referring to the satellites surrounding planet X, each of which uh, has um, a ruler over it, a spirit, which will be the 12 apostles and the 12 uh, uh, patriarchs of the tribes of Israel. And of course, the seven satellites would be archangels, and the four satellites would be probably Ophanim angels, and so forth. And the Ophanim, the wheeled angels, probably refers to the fact that they're turning around, they're actually satellites, um, not angels per se. There's probably a spirit in every single one of them, which governs each one of them. And those are set in rulership over the earth to decide the fate of those who rebelled against God his and his planet, and his rulership of not only heaven, but also earth. And so um, that, I think, is explaining a lot of the mysteries of the Bible, that actually, at least particularly Revelation, if the throne is actually is actually planet X, that would make a lot more sense. Uh, it would be very, very clear what was going on. It would also explain some things in Daniel as well. Also, the idea of the planet being a throne. I believe in chapters two and three, um, uh, at the end of chapter two, I think it is, of Revelation, uh, Jesus says, those who follow me, I'll give them the morning star. And at the end of the following chapter, uh, I will have him sit with me on my throne. It's with throne and star. I forget which one comes first. But the point is, these occur in parallel at the end of the first uh, two and chapters two and three. In parallel, I mean, they're, they're related. They're the same thing in a di- from a different perspective. So what they're saying is, if you're going to if you're going to accept this, as God's throne is actually also a star in heaven or a planet, as we would call it. And then the next chapter, he talks about the throne. And all these things surrounding it, and, and then all the white hair, the sea of glass, and everything, which would make sense from that perspective. If it was a planet, it might have all these characteristics and more. And so the, the theophany of God, which is very similar to that of Marduk and Nehemiah, indicating maybe um, the ancients were aware of or had seen planet X and were able to describe it. It might be that much of the most important scenes at the beginning of the book of Revelation are actually descriptions of planet X and how it has characteristics and how it'll be used as a weapon against the earth. Yeah, that's definitely jam packed with information in there. I'm actually waiting for my copy to get here. So I'll be reading that pretty soon. You'll enjoy um, it. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it actually. Um, yeah, real quickly, I mean, do you have any kind of lean which way or the other on, I guess, the topic of evolution? Do you believe in, in, in that we were just kind of came from nothing and then all of a sudden we just advanced to where we are now or do you have any any kind of thoughts on on that whole topic evolution is a lie propagated by occultists and radical liberals and communists to try to eliminate god from the public discourse regarding science and the history of mankind it has absolutely no proof for it it never did there's a significant amount of fraudulent material purporting to support it it was a joke then and it's, it's bigger joke now because we should know better. Those who put together the revolution were criminals of the worst time. Criminals uh, of, of historical proportions. Uh, that God will judge very harshly, I believe. No evidence for evolution and there never will be because it didn't happen. Mankind and all animal and plant life and everything was created by intelligent beings who I as a Christian believe was God. The angels may have been involved in some way but the text is not clear so until we know better, it was just God, and uh, that's enough. That's all we need to know. I mean, the, the details of creation. I personally think the full extent of what would all is involved in creating something like that is beyond our comprehension. So I don't see any point in 
trying to figure it all out. When we get our resurrection bodies, I imagine we'll be able to see and understand pretty much everything God wants us to see and understand, which will be much greater than it is now. And so I'm, I'm willing to wait. Looking forward to the day, actually. <laughs> yeah, it's you know, I mean, you obviously don't want to take that final leap yet, but um, I'm not scared of it in any way. So um, I just try to enjoy my time here until it finally comes, and then we see what happens afterwards. Uh, so I'm actually looking forward to it, I guess, <laughs> in yep. a way. Yeah. The great hope of the believer. Yeah, of yeah. All denominations. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, sir, as we wind down our time here, um, is there a specific place where everybody can find your book or could they find that on Amazon? Uh, the best place to look is planet-x.info. That's planet-x.info. Right. You can also find it on amazon.com. My previous publisher, uh, Defender Publishing, also known as Skywatch, uh, is still running the old version, but the newer version is available. It's the same thing with a longer title. Just type in Planet X, the sign of the Son of Man, and the end of the age. And you should have two search returns on Amazon. The one that I published recently. Please buy that one instead so the money will go directly to me um, instead of part of it due to royalties. I think it's like number 10 on a page. My, Planet, my old Planet X book, which has been around since 2010, is actually number two in all Planet X books. And so if you'd rather get it from them, that'll be fine. But if you can get the one that comes second in the list, like 10 down or so, that'll be better for me. Also, you can look at mysteriousworld.com for some of my writings about various topics uh, of the world of the Bible. Giants is a popular one, The Riddle of the Sphinx. There's also a Kindle book available on Amazon.com called The Riddle of the Sphinx, which contains information about the Ark of the Covenants and ancient technology and some other interesting surprises and ancient mysteries, which have been forgotten for thousands of years by all the, by the most advanced and high-level occultists, I believe, the not in the sense of being a cult, but in the sense of being very high and very dangerous technology that only a handful of people on Earth could properly handle being, without being killed by it. So I highly recommend that because that will reveal some of the secrets of the end times, which are critical to understand because if we don't understand them, we won't be able to survive against them because they will be turned against us as very, very powerful weapons, including the Ark of the Covenant, which may be used against Christianity to destroy us. And similar technology, which is even more powerful and more dangerous that it would be built by the giants in the world before the flood. Upcoming next year, probably the end of next year, I'll have a book in the giants. I'll let you know if you're interested. Uh, call me back uh, uh, maybe October or November of next year, and I'll let you know if it's available. And we can talk about the next book in the giants, which will be another paradigm shift in our understanding of the ancient world and the world of the Bible. Yeah, we're always interested in, in the giants. It's, it's kind of hard to find uh, good information about the giants. Um, things like that it's it's just more i guess i'm just not knowing where to look right i guess or just not finding the right information but it's just, it's mm-hmm. it's getting a little harder to find information on all kinds of topics like that um so look at mysterious world and go to the archives section okay some of the graphics aren't working anymore we should be able to click on the, on the links and um there, there's a something on giants i think it goes back in 2003 in our archives Okay. And there's a series of four articles which will give you a good overview of my view on the Giants. Some of the material is becoming dated because my views have shifted a little bit, but it's still fundamentally the same. Right. Absolutely. We'll have everything linked down below as well in the comment section for everybody. Um, yes, yeah, sir. I really appreciate your time. It was very interesting. Um, it's you. always great to hear stuff about Planet X. You, you don't really find too much information about it. Definitely not in the mainstream 
uh, anywhere. Um, it's, it's, if it weren't for people like yourself, a lot of us wouldn't have any kind of information like that to look at. So that's, I really appreciate your work on that as well. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, so like I mentioned before, we'll have everything listed down below for everybody that's interested in buying the books, um, links to the websites as well. Um, and you guys can find Mr. Elwell on Facebook as well. Um, you can find information about him or if you want to reach out or anything, you can go ahead and do that through the websites. Um, make sure you guys pick up a book as well. Um, so I really appreciate your time. Um, I look forward to speaking with you again soon, especially about the Giants. Um, we'll yeah. have to do that as well sometime down the line. Um, everybody else, I really appreciate you guys stopping in for another episode. Like I mentioned before, when we started, if you guys are catching us on YouTube, please consider hitting that subscribe button as well as that bell icon and hitting the thumbs up. That really helps out a lot. Uh, you can find us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, as well as iHeartRadio. We have all the links to social media down below. Go ahead and shoot us an email at thetruthdefender1776 at gmail.com if you guys have any questions for myself or our guests. Uh, if you guys have any guest recommendations or just any kind of topics in general you guys want to hear about, uh, we can go ahead and get those up and running for you guys. Um, as always, guys, I really appreciate your time. Everybody have a great weekend. Stay blessed. Uh, everybody stay safe. And most of all, stay frosty.